So I'm Greg Boyd, uh, senior pastor here at Wilden Hills Church, and it really is a joy to be with all of you uh, on this Easter morning, unusual Easter morning that it is. We're in unusual times, odd times, but we're rolling with it, and God's good, and uh, good kingdom things are going on all around us, and we praise God for that. Um, I, I, a reminder here, uh, as I'm doing this message here, kids, uh, be, you can express whatever I'm saying or whatever comes to you, whatever the meaning of Easter is to you, and express that in, in some kind of a drawing, in some kind of artwork. Send that in, take a picture of it, send it in, and at the end we're going to have a celebratory song and we're going to show all that artwork. It's going to be a time of, of worship and celebration. Uh, so be thinking about that. Also, I'll give you the passages that we're going to read uh, ahead of time. Uh, like I, some folks said, hey, you've got to give us more time to, to find these books of the Bible if you're going to have us start looking them up for crying out loud. And so, so today we'll be looking for the book of Luke. We'll be reading from the book of Luke, chapter 15, uh, verses 8 and 9, if you want to uh, get a head start on that. And then also uh, the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. So, uh, got kids in the house, have a contest. You can find the verse the quickest. There you go. Mark said go. All right. I want to start off with this. Um, if you've been at Woodland Hills Church for any length of time, you, you've maybe heard me talk about this, but um, and it, it, I will admit at the beginning, it doesn't sound like an Easter kind of illustration, but hang with me, you'll see. Uh, my mom died when I was two and a half years old, and uh, my dad had four kids, and he was desperate to have someone take care of those kids because he was a traveling salesman, and he found a lady who was desperate, had two kids, and needed someone to take care of, uh, provide for the family. And so uh, he married my stepmother out of convenience or out of necessity, however you want to put it. But it wasn't a good marriage by anyone's standards. It was, truth is, it was pretty awful. Uh, it was war from the word go. Um, and one of the things that made it bad, in fact, I think maybe that, that doomed it right from the get-go, was that my dad and I didn't know this until really later on, but my dad, um, I'm told, never got over uh, loving my mom. He could never really let go of his love for my mom. Arlisle was her name. Um, I remember towards the end um, when they divorced when I was uh, 12 or 12 and a half, almost 13. And, and uh, towards the end, I several times heard my mom, stepmom, say, I can't compete with a blankety blank ghost. When they'd have one of their many fights, he would just throw that out there. I can't compete with this. And, and um, it was like the shadow of my mom hovered over this marriage. My dad just, and, and she said that he idealized her. And that maybe was somewhat true, kind of idealized the past, whatever. But she couldn't compete with that. And that's one of the things, one of the many things that I think doomed this marriage. It's a little bit interesting. It just has a little psychological profile here. But I just realized... Until this week, I'm 62 years old, and this week was the first time I ever empathized with my stepmother on that account. I think growing up, I just had so much of a, you know, she got crazy sometimes, and, and I had a defense towards her, and so I never really took any time to try to get on the inside of her perspective on things. This week, I did. Better late than never. But just begin to feel what that must have been like for her. Uh, that must be terrible. How, how do you compete with a ghost? Uh, it's, and, and it actually helps me a little bit because I think it goes a little ways in explaining why she kind of got crazy and would snap sometimes. I talked to my dad one time about my mom. This is probably two decades after this. And we were just reminiscing about stuff. I don't even know exactly what. We were down in Florida where he was living at the time. And, and we were talking about mom. And at one point he said, it was kind of out of nowhere, but he says, I never should have let them Put your mom in the ground and bury her. 
Apparently he wanted her to be cremated, but he lost on the vote count, and so they buried her. But he said, I never should have let him do that. Uh, and I said, why? Because that's kind of what people usually do when people die. And, and he said, it's just because it, it, it torments me to think that someone so beautiful would have their body just end by decomposing in the ground. I, I, it, it feels like a crime to put such a beautiful person in, in the ground and have them end this way. Apparently he thought cremation was a lot more dignified way of going. Now, I personally don't see the logic of that. It seems to me that, uh, you know, being incinerated isn't exactly the most noble way to end either. I mean, it's, it's whether you want to get there fast or slow. Choose your poison. So the logic of it is kind of gone. But beneath the logic of it, whatever you think about that, my dad, oh, I think he was, he was expressing a real fundamental intuition, a core fundamental intuition that I think is at the center of every healthy human heart. And that, that intuition, that gut feeling is that, that, that something as precious as this love that we have should not end this way. There's something wrong about having something so valuable, so worthwhile, that it would end just turning to dust. It, it's, there's, a, there's a jarringness that, 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 that's created with that. There's a core intuition, I think, that we have at the core of our being. Maybe we don't let ourselves believe it because we're just so used to being disappointed. But at the core of, the, of our being, there's a sense that love, not death, should have the last word. It's like when you love somebody, you come to know their, their worth. That is what it is to love somebody. You, you come to see what God sees, and, and you value them. You see the infinite worth that they have. And when you see that worth, the idea that that would end up just rotting in the ground is just there's something in us that just revolts against that. It ought not to be. There's something wrong with that. It can't end like this. I think it's one of the deepest, most painful paradoxes of life, that on the one hand, life seems so infinitely precious. So infinitely precious. It's so valuable. It's so beautiful. And it, 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 it's literally priceless. Uh, one of the hard points of being in this pandemic for Shelly and I, and we've got it easy compared to multitudes and multitudes, but we all have some price to pay. But one of the hard things is watching our, our granddaughter, our new granddaughter, Tasha, grow up on a camera. <laughs> Um, and, and seeing her walk for the first time on camera and smile for the first time and all the firsts. We're missing all those firsts. We can't be there. <laughs> we wish it could, Tasha, but it's beautiful to watch even from a distance. Um, but, but, but see, that, that, there's just such a preciousness there. It's like watching a priceless diamond just grow and flower. So precious. Life is, is so precious. And yet, in this fallen world, it sometimes gets treated as being worthless. It seems like life is just, meh. It's here today, gone tomorrow. And the, the incongruity between that, it, it's jarring. It should not be this way. It's like, it's like, some of you saw this video of this bus driver this last week. He was, uh, he, he complained on his, after his route, he complained on his phone. He was just recording that. He says, there's a guy who was coughing behind me. It was so rude. He wasn't covering his mouth. People ought to be more considerate. Uh, he caught the virus, and two weeks later, he died. And this was a father here who had a wife and had some kids. I think he, he had twins that had just uh, celebrated their birthday. All these hopes, all these dreams, all this love, all this relationship, all this beauty, all this potential, boom, snuffed out because someone was coughing carelessly and because a, a virus mutated in a certain way that is lethal to humans. It ought not to be something so precious, so valuable, so dear, I not to be so vulnerable to something so iffy, so, so contingent, so fickle. 
Whenever a loved one dies unexpectedly like this, we have that jarring effect, whether it's a virus or it's a car accident or some other genetic mutation or what have you. It's like, it ought not to be this way. And we really sense this, I think, in this pandemic. The jarringness between the preciousness of life and then how the life in this fallen world can treat it. It's just like, yeah, you know, all the statistics we're, we're seeing, and thank God the t statistics are starting to turn around a little bit, but for so long we've just seen them climb, climb, climb. You turn on the news, newsflash, it's getting worse, it's going to get worse. You know, it's just over and over. And, and, and the statistics of thousands and thousands of people who have caught this bug and then who are dying from this bug and whatever. And it's easy for that just to become a statistic. Oh, wow, 20,000 people died. Don't, but think about that. 20,000 here in America. I don't know what it is worldwide. 100,000 or something. But it could just become a number. But every one of those numbers is a precious, precious, infinitely precious life uh, whom God loves and who has so much potential and had dreams. And I mean, there's this a story that was cut short in every one of those statistics. They're not just statistics. They're a love story that, that was abruptly ended. Probably the worst thing I, I've seen so far is this, uh, those mass graves that they're, they're, they're uh, creating now in New York. And all these folks uh, in these little makeshift coffins are being put in these mass graves because the, no one claimed them. They don't know who they are. I guess in New York they have that you know, hundreds, uh, hundreds of times every week, so they have a place where they put these folks. But here there's this, so many of them, and you look at that, and, what a way to end. And, I, and, no one noticed that you died or, or maybe you felt something the cracks, but it's, it's tragic enough. It's unthinkably tragic enough that so many of these folks have to die alone and their loved ones aren't there. But then to not even have somebody who knows you and to be, die in a nameless grave, it ought not to end like that. There's, if that's the final word, then there is an eternal injustice in this universe that is wrong. A life so beautiful. All these, these, these folks here who died namelessly, they were once a Tasha and, and had... Uh, someone dreaming dreams for them and hopes for them and they were going to grow up to be somebody and do with this and love this and whatever and it, it, it ends like this. It, there's something in us that just says that that is intolerable. That, that, that's, it, it's unnatural. It's an eternal injustice. It's like Shakespeare said that if death has the last word, that life is a tale told by some idiot. It's full of sound and fury, full of passion, but it signifies absolutely nothing. It's essentially a big, painful waste of time. Is that the last word? This intuition that my dad had that there's something fundamentally wrong with something so beautiful ending like this. I think that reflects the heart of God. That, that's something about his being made in the image of God. He revolts at the idea that a love story would be cut short, that something so beautiful, a person so worthwhile would end in such, such an ignoble way. Well, see, that, that reflects the tenacity and the persistence uh, of, of, of God's loving heart, as we're going to see here. Uh, there's something healthy about that, that, uh, that intuition that he's got. So this brings us to Luke chapter 15. Uh, Jesus is here having another one of his debates with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are saying, hey, Jesus, why are you hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and, and you're having dinners with them for crying out loud, birds of a feather flock together. A, a man of God, a holy rabbi like you should not be doing that. Uh, it, 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 if you were a real man of God, well, then you would not be hanging with the likes of these. So Jesus tells a story, and, and what's at stake in the story is, is, is like, who does, come, who does God look for? Who does God come for? Who does the Messiah come to save? Here's what we read in Luke chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. He says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one of them. Doesn't she light a lamp, a candle, and sweep the house 
and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who, who, who repents. Okay, so this lady, she lost a coin. So she sweeps the house, lights a candle, sweeps the house until she finds it. Uh, she's clearly very invested in this coin. And it leads to the question, why? Uh, you need to understand that, that the background of this passage is Jesus talking to peasants, and peasants live in huts uh, in first century Palestine. Most of these folks would be living in a one-room hut, and often there was no windows at all. So when you lose a coin in one of these huts, and it's an earth floor, okay, usually it was just a dust floor, so, so, so you don't have any light, so you've got to light a candle, and you've got to look around for that, that coin, and then you've got to sweep, because who knows where it is. It could be under this dirt or whatever, so it's not an easy task. But she's very invested. She searches until she finds it. Everyone say until. until. All right. See, she doesn't give up. There's something about this coin that she's got to find this coin. Now, the coin she's talking about here is a denarii, which is uh, about a, a one day's wages for a peasant worker. And most of these peasants, in fact, all of them, are working manual labor of some sort. So a day's wages, manual labor, probably 10, 12 hours, well, that's quite a bit. And so that would motivate a person to search diligently to try to find that coin. You don't want to have to work the whole day for nothing. And some have supposed that Jesus mentions these 10 coins, these 10 denarii, and perhaps that was the whole family savings. And so to lose one-tenth of your family savings, um, to have 10 days of a buffer zone wages in, in the ancient world, that's about as good a safety net as you're going to get for peasants. And so that could explain why she's so diligently looking for this coin. But it seems to me that there's something more going on. Um, I mean, I, I could understand her searching diligently for that which was worth a day's labor, but why would she throw a party afterwards? She throws a party. I mean, the party would probably, the way it's described here, would cost more than a denarii to throw. You'd have to feed the people, right? Give them something to drink. It's going to cost more than a day's wages to throw that party. So why would you throw a party that costs more than a denarii to celebrate the fact that you found a denarii? Something's funky here. Something's going on. Uh, this coin, it seems to me, means something more to this woman than just a day's labor. Here's what we know about the ancient world in ancient Palestine that, you know, peasants, because they don't have much money, they, you know, they find creative ways of expressing their love. And one of the ways that love was expressed in the ancient uh, Jewish world uh, was sometimes as a dowry gift or what would be the equivalent of a wedding ring to us, what was given was a necklace of 10 denarii. A necklace. They, they would weave together somehow this necklace of these 10 coins. Um, and the, in, in, in Judaism, 10 represents um, the per perfection. And we could go into the whole numerology behind that, but it was generally understood. So this necklace was an expression of perfect, perfect love. And it's 10 days labor, which is, you know, a lot for a peasant. But, you know, by world standards, that's not the most expensive wedding gift you could give somebody, whatever. But see, this is, what, this is the best they have and expresses something to this woman, which now would explain, I think, Better than just a day's labor, why she is so diligently looking for this coin, why she has to look for this coin until she finds it. Because see, it's not about the day's labor. If, if this is right, that this expresses, that these 10 coins represent this necklace, and the fact that Jesus specifies 10, I, I think, lends credibility to this way of interpreting it. But that means then that, this, that, that her love for her husband and her husband's love for her is wrapped up in this coin. That coin 
It's not about how much it's worth in terms of the economy. It's, about, it's what it's worth to her. All of her hopes and dreams and memories and the covenant and pledges and the ups and downs of her marriage are wrapped up in this covenantal necklace. This covenantal necklace symbolizes everything. And if one of the ten coins is missing, it's ruined. Sometimes, in fact, these things could become heirlooms that were passed down. And that would give it a special kind of a, 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 a meaning. She's got to find that coin because that coin is irreplaceable. That's a one-of-a-kind coin. That's the coin that her husband had given her. That coin's got meaning that uh, the other coins don't have. Denaries are denaries. It has the same meaning for everybody. But this denarii for this woman means everything. It's the most priceless, precious gift that she's got. She's going to look for it until, until she finds it. She will not abandon that coin. Now, Jesus says that that is, that's how God thinks about us. That's the point of this. This is God's attitude towards us. When we were lost, and we all were lost, when we were lost of our own doing, when we were estranged from God, when we had brought ourselves into captivity to the, to the powers and subjected ourselves into creation, to, to, the, to the corruption of the powers. When we had, were off doing our own thing, being Lord of our own life, creating our own messes in our life, whatever we were doing, all the while God was desperately searching for us, searching for you, desperately searching for you, and will search for you until he finds you. Because that's what you matter to God. Um, and that doesn't end just because you become a Christian. Like, okay, now I once was lost, but now I'm found. No, see, God doesn't, his desperate love for you doesn't stop because now he's found you or you've, you've entered into a relationship with him. Because to have found you is one thing, but there's always new, new use to find. There's, new, there's a depth of you to find, right? Uh, God wants more of you. God, God wants all of you. And so God relentlessly, persistently, out of love, passionate love, a desperate love that will not let this thing go unfulfilled. This must be complete. This love affair must be complete. He pursues us, sweeps the house for us, lights the candle for us. And if the, if the parable means anything, I hope you see this, the whole point of the parable is that it's not about you. Not, not in terms of the, the you that the world sees. It's not about how talented you are or how good you are or how bad you are. Or how you rate in the social value of things. The denarii is a denarii. It, it, it means something that, you know, it means a day's labor to the world. But to this woman, it means something totally different. So also you to the world, I don't know what you mean to the world. Maybe you're popular or a celebrity. Maybe you're not. Maybe, you know, maybe you got a lot going for you. Maybe you don't have anything going for you. Maybe you've had a really cool, you know, Christian life and you've been pretty good all the while. Maybe you've just been jacked up from the word go and all the cards were set against you and life's been a total mess. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because the whole point of it is what the coin means to God. It doesn't matter what it means to anybody else or if it means anything to anybody else. It matters. It has infinite worth to God. And God's the one doing the searching. And God's the one doing the finding. And God's the one doing the saving. And God's the one doing the resurrecting. God's the one doing the story completing. Everything else is irrelevant. You, you bear the image of God. He created you in his image. So something of his own identity is wrapped up in you. You're, you're, you're infinitely precious to him. Not only that, but on the cross, you are put in Jesus Christ. He brings you, God opens us up his household, brings us in, and places us in Jesus Christ. And then Jesus tells us in, in John 17, uh, verse 26, he says, Father, I thank you that you have loved them with the same love with which you've loved me. Get that. The same love. The love that you have for me. The love that, that comprises the, the Trinity, the triune God, the perfect, unsurpassable love of God. The same love you have for them. Because they are in me. We are in Christ. And so the same love the Father has for the Son, He has for us. 
Uh, he's welcomed us in. And while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, while we didn't want anything to do with God, God pursues us. And Paul tells us in Acts 17 that, that throughout history, in every nation, every time, with every person, God is searching for them, seeking them, trying to get their hearts to be hungry for him and possibly find him. In every human heart, because God creates everybody in his image and he wants to have a relationship with every single person. He is a woman who's relentlessly sweeping the floor looking for the lost coins. And, and, and even if he finds us, he keeps on searching. He wants to get deeper, more of us. This love, can be, this, this love has got to be totally fulfilled. He will not leave it incomplete. And folks, this is why we can be assured that he's not going to leave us in the ground. He's not going to leave. He started a love story with you. There's a love story that began with you. Uh, the, right from the very beginning, God's always been involved in your life, whether you knew it or not. This is a love story he's creating. And maybe right now it's kind of a jaded love story. It's going to be a long and twisted love story, but the love story has got to be completed. And God is thinking here, the, the perfection of my love, this tenfold necklace, this ten coin necklace that symbolizes perfection, it cannot be broken. You've got to be part of this. He's desperately in love with you, searching for you. Uh, we read this in the book of Acts. Here, this brings us to the second passage. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, and then Peter stands up to preach. And among the things he says here is this, verse 22. People of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now listen to this. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Everyone say impossible. impossible. Everyone say it louder so I can hear you over the TV waves. Impossible. It was not possible to keep him in the ground. Why? You don't need to have some kind of metaphysical theory about the eternal soul of people or anything like that. The reason it was impossible was because of the Father's love for the Son. Uh, it was impossible because the Father's love for the Son is a perfect love, and that love cannot be permanently broken. It was impossible. Because the same, it's impossible that we would stay in the grave because the same love that raised Jesus Christ is towards us, for we are in Christ Jesus. It's impossible that this, something as precious as Jesus Christ would end up having death as the last word. It's impossible for the God of perfect love to have death be the, the last word. No, for the God of perfect love, that love story, get, it, it, there's no power like the power of God's love. That's why Paul says that the cross is the power of God and the resurrection shows the power of the cross. The resurrection is the victory of the cross way of life. It is the strongest force in the universe. It is, the resurrection verifies, it testifies that, that, that God's love is more powerful than sin, death, and the grave, praise God. And so it testifies that, that, that uh, in fact, in the end, it says that it will be incomparably worth it. Where God is heading, this love story will culminate and it will be incomparably worth it, Paul says in Romans 8. There will be a time when, when death will no, or love will no longer be interrupted by death, no longer interrupted by separation, cut short by a virus. Then the creation will be as the creation was so it's always supposed to be. But lock this in, you are that lost coin. You are that last coin. Maybe, maybe, maybe you, you think to yourself, you know, I'm not a special denarii. I don't shine brighter than any other denarii. In fact, maybe I'm a scuffed up denarii. I'm a dirty denarii. I've been passed around too much. I've been used up, spit out. I'm just, 
No one ever throws a party for me. No one's going to go looking for me. No one's going to go lighting a candle, go searching for me. They won't even know I'm gone. Now, I, I doubt that's true. I doubt that's true. But I hope you can see that, that even if that was true, it wouldn't make any difference. It's what you matter to God. Uh, the identity of Jesus Christ is wrapped up in you. Uh, he's not going to leave you in, in, in the grave. Uh, I come to see this week that really, it, 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 to, to doubt that we will live forever with him is really, it comes down to like so many other things. It's a question of trusting God's character. Do we trust God's character? Do we trust God to be a perfectly loving God that he says he is? Think about this. You're not a perfect uh, spouse or a perfect parent, perfect friend, but if you had the power and a, and a friend or a spouse or a child had died and you can now recover that love story, reunite with them and pick up where you left off, would you do it? Of course you would do it because you love them. How could we think God's going to just like, ah, that's gone. No, no. Uh, he that began a good work in us will see it through to the end. Uh, it will be completed. It will be completed in a glorious way. One last thing I have to say, and that's this. What I've just spoke here this morning, Easter morning, is Easter truth. This is the truth. This is what God has done. That God, I, this shows the desperate love of God, that God would set aside all the privileges of heaven and become a, a human being and then dive into our sin and then dive into our curse, all to be restored with us. That's an act of a desperately loving God. Hallelujah. Um, and, and, and that's what's true. The question is, is, are you aligned with it? See, the, here's what's true. But we, God will never coerce us into believing things we don't want to believe. He doesn't force anybody. He, he gives us choice. He woos us. He influences us, but he gives us choice. And we can choose to live in line with this beautiful, glorious truth that has been revealed on Easter, or we can live against it. You can live your own life and do your own thing. And in that case, everything that God's done for you will not benefit you. To benefit from it, you have to align. Get your thinking and your being and your living to line up with what is true. And it starts by having an act of surrender. What's true is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the first act of aligning your life with his is to submit to that. Submit to the Lord. Just turn over the reign of your life to him. And know that when you're doing that, you're turning the reign over your life over to the one who is love incarnate. And that love lasts forever and it's the only thing that does. That love goes eternal. It cannot be eternally thwarted. And whatever is consistent with that will live forever. And whatever is not, the Bible says, is eventually burned off. Get your life right with God. Get your life right with God. This, what a great time to do here this, this Easter. Just, just in your heart, turn over the reign of your life to him. If that's a decision you're making this morning, I encourage you that uh, at the close of the service, we'll have some prayer teams up that you can get into on a Zoom conference or however that works. It's supposed to be self-evident. Uh, anyways, so uh, yeah, check, check that out. 